Good morning, everybody. It is really precious to be together again today um, to gather uh, as God's people. I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Um, if you need a Bible, don't have one in your hands, there's still a pile of them on the table at the back there. You're welcome to pick one up. And I think we're on page 98, which is where Exodus 20 is. Also, if you don't own a Bible, you're very welcome to take one of those home with you. Um, we encourage you to do so, in fact, and um, to learn what um, this is all about if you uh, haven't ever read the Bible for yourself. Exodus 20. We are in a series on the Ten Commandments, which are um, were given as God's kind of... The, the analogy I tried to use when we were beginning this series is almost as like God's... Almost like wedding vows, actually. That God had saved his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt and brought them into freedom... And as part of what it meant now to be his people and to be in a covenant relationship with him, which is, of course, what marriage is, and this is the analogy that the Bible uses of this relationship, the first thing he does is give them um, a sense of what their lives ought to be like now that they're living as his people, now that they've come out of slavery, now that they're now the unique people in the world who stand apart from everybody else in the world, what their lives ought to look like. And so he uh, encapsulates the, the essence of his will for them in ten commandments, which were written on stone and kept in the very heart of their, the place of worship. And of course, there are many, many other laws in, in the Bible, hundreds of other laws in the Bible in, in terms of how the Israelites were meant to live. But really, the essence of them boils down to these ten commandments. And so I want to read you just a few verses. We've got, we've got to number four today. It says, just from the beginning of the chapter, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then down to verse 8. This is the fourth command. He says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, which uh, sort of the immigrant who's come to live with the people of God. Um, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I, I, I suspect that for many of us, um, if you were to actually sort of rank the Ten Commandments in terms of what you think are the most important and the least important or the most relevant to us and the least, um, this would probably come at the bottom of the list for most people in this room and certainly for people outside the room who are not sort of um, Christians. I think it's considered to be the commandment with the least relevance to us in modern day life. And um, it's, it's really not surprising. In many ways, it's quite baffling. If you're the God of the universe and you want to distill the heart of your will for your people in terms of moral commands down to 10 commandments, would you include in that a command about the necessity of taking time off to rest? It's quite strange, isn't it? You wouldn't even necessarily think of it as a moral issue at all, never mind one that's worthy of the Ten Commandments. And because uh, most of us, we, we don't need to be commanded to take time off. We want to take time off, right? Or you, you want to go on holiday, you want to rest, and you want to chill. And so it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that God is 
commanding us. He's making an imperative. And even more so, when you carry on reading through, through the, the story as it progresses, that this is one of the commands with the most severe penalties. Um, God really got annoyed with people when they ignored this particular command. And you scratch your head and think, why is this such a big deal? And of course, part of the reason why we were confused around that is what it's led to is really in many ways a neglect of this, especially even among Christians, but certainly in society at large. I remember when I was young, I'm not quite sure when the law changed, but when I was, I think it was under the Labour government, but when I was young, um, there were still Sunday trading laws in place, where if you went out into the center of town or into your high street on a Sunday, the only places open were... um, were restaurants, actually. It was not much else. Um, everywhere was shut. People didn't... The shops weren't open. You couldn't go shopping. There was no sort of Oxford Street on Sundays. It was all dead. And that's changed in the last however many years, certainly, certainly in, the, in the last couple of decades. And everything has, has, uh, has opened up. And we, we now really don't have a, a special day. And it's, it really marks the kind of secularization of our society and the distancing from its Christian heritage to a large extent. But it's also just like people don't really get it. Like, why would you need to enforce this? Uh, and, and also, if you want to have a day off, then going shopping is one nice way of spending it for many of us, right? And so for me, I think it shows us what we don't really understand the reasons. We don't really understand the importance. And we don't get why this is a big deal to God. In fact, one of the, one of the uh, you know, when God's speaking to his people through the prophets in the Old Testament, one of the things that he often criticizes them of is he says, you have profaned my Sabbath. You've made it into a common day um, by ignoring it. And while I believe that as Christians, we're not under the law in the same way. We're not bound to keep the Sabbath in the same way that the Israelites were. Nevertheless, it is still vital for us to press beneath just the surface of what the words say and understand the principle that lies behind it and the abiding relevance that it has for us today. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say this, that I think if you grasp what this is about today, that there is the potential for massive spiritual rejuvenation for many of you. That through God's word, this can bring life to you in a new way. What, what is God's heart for you? Why does he command in this way? And I think it can mean life to you. So the question then is, what is it? What's a Sabbath? Well, the word in itself just means stop. That's what it means. You shall have a stopping day. But of course, I want us to press beneath that and understand really the answer to this. What is it that Sabbath does? What does it mean? What does it symbolize? What is it important for? And I've got three answers I want to pursue today to try and explain that to you. And uh, they have to do with worship, which is probably the most obvious and the one many of us would immediately jump to. Freedom and then rest. Worship, freedom, and rest. And I want to begin with the first, worship. Now, a couple of clues in the passage that this is what it was about. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you know what the word holy means? It means to be set apart. Of course, in our minds, it has to do with moral purity. But in the, in the Bible, it's much more about being pulled out of life and belonging to God. And so you think, well, holy, how can you make a day, what does it mean for a day to be holy? And then there's another clue. He says, the seventh day is a a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So there is a day in the week which God is saying, "I I want to take you and your time, and you are meant to devote this time to me in a special way. So what does that mean to make a day holy? 
It doesn't mean that it's the day on the week when you decide, I'm going to try especially hard today not to sin. Because Christians, you know, you're called to a life of holiness. If you just say, okay, I've got one day a week when I don't sin, then you're in real trouble, I can tell you that. It doesn't mean that you, it's the day when you avoid pleasure either. A lot of people associate um, enjoying yourself with, um, or, or actually they associate holiness with being miserable. And I'm not quite sure where you get that idea from. It's certainly not a biblical idea. I remember, I mean, Christians of sort of previous generations had very rigid views about Sabbath. And one of them was that you weren't really allowed to do anything fun on a Sabbath day, on a Sunday particularly. Um, In the old film Chariots of Fire, this is depicted well when Eric Little, the Christian athlete who uh, wouldn't run on a Sunday, and an amazing uh, man, in many ways an extraordinary sort of example of, of godliness in so many aspects of his life. But there's this moment sort of captured early in the movie when he comes out of church on a Sunday and there's a little boy um, playing football outside. And he goes, hey, wee laddie, what are you doing? Playing on a Sabbath? Or something like that in a Scottish accent. And, and there's immediately this sort of, oh, what, are we not allowed to have fun on, on, on a Sunday or on a Sabbath? And, and actually, I don't think that's what it's about at all. It's not about just setting aside a day not to sin. It's not about not having fun on a particular day. It's definitely not also about... Um, setting aside a day for kind of purely what we might think of as spiritual activities. So um, certainly if you read some of the older writers, they would, have, they would have said, listen, you've got to have a day where you do very little else beside, um, beside gathering with God's people and praying and worshiping in, in solitude as well. And um, I, I'm not quite sure that that's, that's actually what this day is about. And certainly when you read the Bible, there's very little to support that idea that it's, it's a day for just doing spiritual things, as you'll see um, when we open this up. So I want to help you understand what I mean by worship in, under three words. The words are consecration, calibration, and celebration. Think about consecration. This word consecration means to set something aside. You can do it with your whole life. In fact, part of what it means to become a Christian in the first place is to consecrate your life to God. You're saying, this life is not my own, I belong to God. But if that's true in a very general way of your life, sometimes you need to make special acts of devotion to intensify that reality. You can see this, I mentioned this a few weeks ago with the Nazarite vow, which is an old vow that the Israelites could take with them. They grew their hair long and didn't eat um, fermented foods and didn't touch dead bodies for a set period of time. They were saying, I want to belong to you in a particular and devoted way so that my whole life will be yours. Of course, we're meant to give our whole lives to God, but sometimes you have to, you have to make a deliberate and devoted effort, don't you, to, to really intensify that experience of what it means to belong to God. And an example here is how you use your money. Our conviction is that everything we have belongs to God. But the reason why we set aside a portion to give to God in terms of you know, what we call the tithe is because of the, it, it's a symbol in a sense of the entirety belonging to him. You could, you could go through life and say, oh, it's all God's, but I don't, I don't give to anything. And of course, in a, in a sense, then, well, none of it's God's. But by giving a portion, you are saying to God, the whole of it is yours, and this is my, a symbol of, my, of a sacrifice to you. And the same is at work here with your time. 
The whole of your life belongs to God, and the whole of your life is worship. The whole of your life is consecrated. But when you give aside a set portions of your time to God, and it's true in your daily experience of walking with him, right? When you have a time in the day when you want to get on your knees and pray, when you want to get on uh, and read the word of God, the reason why you devote moments to God is because you're saying the whole of me belongs to you. So it has to do with consecration. Here's another thing what I mean by worship. It has to do with calibration. And the word calibrate just means to kind of set, reset something against a, a particular standard. You can think about this with weights and measures. If you've got a pair of scales in your bathroom, um, one of the things you might notice if you weigh yourself on different sets of scales is how much they diverge from one another. So one set of scales, you jump off cheering. You're like, yes, I'm, I've, I've lost all this weight. And then you go to the official ones and the doctors and you realize that something, one of them is broken. And the reason is that they're not calibrated. To be calibrated means to be reset to a particular standard. And I think part of the reason why God calls us to set aside a portion of our time to worship him has to do with spiritual recalibration. That during the week, in the wear and tear of your ordinary life, even though all of life is worship, the reality is that the very easily your, your eyes drift, don't they? That your, your heart for God begins to, to uh, in some ways, cool off. Or you, you can be fostering bad heart, bad attitudes, bad habits. And the longer you keep going down that road, the more and more you diverge from what is, what is real godliness, what it means to walk with God. So the reason why you were called to set aside a, a portion of time in a very deliberate way like this has to do with this recalibration. Every week, you're going back to be with God's people, to remind yourself of what holiness is, to, to have your heart stirred up in worship so that your, your walk with God doesn't drift off into, into oblivion. It's got to do with recalibration, but it also has to do with celebration. Do you know in the Bible, the way God sort of gave a pattern for what it means to worship him, was not just through, as I said, the kind of spiritual activities that we, we know of, like prayer and gathering together with God's people and the, opening the word of God and worshiping him through song. One of the most important ways God called his people to worship him was through feasting, through happiness. In Nehemiah 8, it says... Uh, Nehemiah tells the people, he says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Remember, that's the same language. Holy day. Do not mourn or weep, because they were all weeping uh, when they heard God's law. And he said, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, Nehemiah says the most honoring way that you can enjoy God in your worship is through feasting. And you think, well, what does this have to do with what does this have to do with a holy life and a worshipful life? And I think the answer is that holiness has a lot more to do with with gratitude than it does to do with kind of self-denial and um, stripping away good things from your life. Of course, sometimes some of the good things are traps to, to us, aren't they? And, and become a cause for sin. I know that. But a lot of people misunderstand what holiness is. They think it has to do with scarcity. That it has to do with austerity, personal austerity, to, to being frugal. 
And they think the holy life is, is the straight-laced life in wearing nothing but gray and, and looking very serious. And biblical holiness doesn't actually look like that. Biblical holiness is the ability to rejoice in God. Because the happier you are in God, the less likely you are to go to sin to fill your life with pleasure. And I think this is why what, part of what it means to have a day that's holy for God is the ability to feast and enjoy him. So I hope you're understanding what, what the picture is of a day of worship looks like in the Bible. A couple of tips on this before we move on. How can we worship well on these holy days? And I've I got a couple of suggestions. One is this. I think that we need to eat good food and drink good wine. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I think a lot of Christians would love God more if they knew how to feast well. And I'm not talking about gluttony. It's a different thing altogether. I'm talking about that robust way that you can enjoy the good gifts of God worshiping as you do it giving thanks to him for every good thing he's put in your lap. And Christians, of all people, should be known for this. I'm not talking about the wildness of parties which become an opportunity for all kinds of just indulging the flesh, but I'm talking about the the Christian vision of what it means to sanctify all of your life as an opportunity for praise and enjoy the good things of life. And of course, I'm speaking metaphorically in a sense when I say enjoy good food and drink good wine. It applies to many other things in your life. But there ought to be moments, this moment in the week when you just rejoice in God through the good things he's given to you. That's one tip. Another practical tip here is that I encourage you to be a person who commits to the gathering of God's people. There was an old illustration which youth workers always used to use in just about every other youth talk when I was a kid. But it it lived with me, which was the picture of coals in the fireplace. You know, when you've got a bunch of coals in the fireplace and they glow red hot, they keep each other hot. But you take one of those out and put it in isolation, it immediately begins to to turn black and then to grow cold, doesn't it? Very quickly, actually. It loses its heat. And the same is true in the Christian life, that when you're extracted from God's people and from the corporate dimension of worship, very quickly your personal worship grows cold, doesn't it? Your heart for God diminishes. And if you're not persuaded on the importance of the gathered worship, in, you know, at least once a week. I mean, many of us give ourselves to more than that because we meet midweek as well. But if you're not persuaded that, by that, remember this was what Jesus did. In Luke 4, we're told that he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And then he stood up to read and he taught the people. Jesus made it his pattern in life to gather with God's people every single week. And I would encourage you, unless you think you're more spiritual than Jesus, that this is a good habit to be in. All right, that's the first point, is worship. Here's the second one. What is this Sabbath day about? It's also about freedom. What's freedom? Freedom is the option to stop working. It's true in terms of employment. A slave doesn't make those choices. But freedom is the option to stop working, isn't it? It's true also in terms of your financial obligations. Some of you may not be a slave to um, 
to your employer, though actually I think in London it's increasingly common to see that many of us are, that, that we're always tethered to our desk and tethered to our work. And I'm not sure there's any other way of describing that other than the kind of slavery, except that you can say, well, I can get out of it, except for the second factor, which is that part of your slavery has to do with financial indebtedness as well, doesn't it? The more financial obligations we have, the harder it is to live a free life because you, you have to work and you have to keep a particular job in order to pay the bills. And this is, this is a real challenge for us in the modern world where we're leveraged up to our eyeballs in debt and we have jobs that expect us to be involved often seven days a week and these kinds of things. But you know, this is all the more reason why we've got to understand what the Sabbath was given for. Why was there a command to express their freedom by not working? When the Ten Commandments are reiterated in Deuteronomy 5, they, it gives us a little bit of light into that very question. It tells us there, he, he tells them to observe the Sabbath, and then he gives them this reason. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God commanded you, he said, to keep the Sabbath day because you used to be slaves and you are not now slaves. In other words, at the heart of what it means to be keeping a Sabbath, to be setting aside a portion of your week for worship to God, is the remembering of your deliverance from slavery. Now, of course, none of you, to my knowledge, have ever been literal slaves. So what, where does this pan, how does this map onto the Christian life? Well, think about this. I think that it's very quick and easy for us to begin to act like slaves. Because of three reasons. There's the expectations of the world around us. And the drivenness and the drive in, in the culture. And I think actually you feel this just in the air in London, don't you? You don't have to converse with anyone about, about it. It's just, it just seeps into you. Um, the expectations of what it means to be a vibrant and productive and useful member of society. There's also the expectations we place on ourselves, which I think are probably even more powerful, that can cause us to think and act like slaves. I mean those hidden drivers in your spirit that, that compel you to do more and to be more and to work harder and to attain more, which very often are not just drivers, but slave drivers for the inner person. Do you resonate at all with what I'm talking about? That sense that you are compelled in life and that you cannot, you cannot rest because you must grasp for the next thing. And some people express that way more intensely than others. I recognize there's a spectrum. But all of us, I think, feel that to some degree. And it's characterized by self-criticism, isn't it? How easy it is to feel actually a kind of self-loathing if you don't meet your own standards or you're not as brilliant as you think you could be or wish you were. So there's the expectations of the world and of yourself, but also we need to throw in the mix there, there's the imagined expectations of God. That for some of you, life is unhappy and driven because of an imagined understanding of how, what God expects of you. And it means that you live under a constant sense of being unworthy and a constant sense of inadequacy and of striving and of a cloud, in fact. Now, I think this is why God gave the Sabbath. 
Israel's story was slavery under Egypt, delivered by God and by his kindness to be free and live in the land of promise. And of course, it's a picture. It was always meant to be a picture of what the Christian life is. You were slaves to sin and to, to the enemy and to the God of this world. And when you become a Christian, you experience freedom for the first time. You suddenly know what it means to bask under the Father's love and to experience his kindness even though you don't deserve it. And so in my understanding, I think Sabbath day and this idea of remembering your freedom has to do with rehearsing this gospel that we we believe as Christians. Because I think we forget it so easily. Jeremy began the service with these words from Matthew 11. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that your view of the Christian life? Do you think of the Christian life as, in many ways, the removal of burdens? Because I think a lot of you think of it as the addition of burdens, of carrying a weight that is impossible for you. Sabbath is about coming to a place where you rehearse and remember the gospel of God's freeing power that he has brought you into a wide open space. In Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, he puts it like this. He says, Sabbath is a declaration of our freedom. It means you are not a slave, not to your culture's expectations, your family's hopes, your medical school's demands, not even to your own insecurities. It's important that you learn to speak this truth to yourself with a note of triumph. Otherwise, you'll feel guilty for taking time off or you'll be unable to truly unplug. Friends, what happens when you, when you don't do this, when you don't receive and let these truths seep into you and shape your heart? The answer is that drivenness warps you as a person. Not only do you treat yourself unkindly, And hold yourself to a standard that God doesn't hold you to. But you begin to treat others that way also. At work, this is one of the first signs actually that people don't really get the gospel. They don't really get God's kindness. Is how they treat other people. You think in work you become harsh and overbearing. Heavy handed and unable to to, uh, be gracious and merciful towards those around you. Especially if you're in a leadership. And in, in faith, in your practice of Christianity, you become harsh and judgmental you quickly um, dismiss or or cast judgment over other believers because because of this what really is just a a kind of internal legalism of like a standard You, you know what you're attaining to and everyone ought to run as hard as you run this is one of the first signs that this has never really gotten hold of you you don't really understand what it means to be free in christ It's so interesting that when God commanded them to rest, he said to them, not just to you, he says, this is, this is for you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and your livestock and the sojourner, the immigrant who's in your midst, the person who is be easy to abuse and, and misuse. In other words, at the heart of what it means to be a believer in God and to experience his freedom 
is the transformation of heart that allows you to express grace and mercy to everyone around you, even your animals. Such is the power of the gospel to change the human heart. And the Sabbath is calling us back to this freedom every time we gather. Now here's my last thing. If it's about worship, if it's about freedom, do you know the most important reason the Bible gives for taking a day off a week is simply to rest. I think when you understand that you read this in context, what you realize actually is this is the most, this is the highest reason that God gives for taking a Sabbath was that you should rest. You think that doesn't seem like a particularly spiritual thing, does it? But this is what he tells us. He tells us, look at God. God rested after he created the world for six days. And whenever you see people breaking the Sabbath in the Old Testament, it's not because they fail to worship or they fail to remember the the gospel, as it were. It's because they start working. They fail to rest. So you can see what the most, the highest, most important reason is for keeping the Sabbath is in, in the Old Testament. It's simply that you experience rest. And you think, why does rest matter so much to God? I think it has to do with a few things. The first is to do with your humility. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been trying to take God's place. That desire to be in control. You can see this in your own life when, firstly, when you stop praying. When you stop praying, it's the first sign that you are trying to live your own, to control your own life. And the second sign is when you stop resting. These things indicate that you think you run the world. The ability to rest well expresses your confidence that God runs the world and you do not. And so God enforced this rest because he wanted people never to forget that they depend on him, not on themselves. Is there anything more fundamental to spiritual maturity than that? I don't think there is. The whole Christian life is depending on God. And the ability to just stop for a single day a week, can you manage that? Just one day is a sign of whether you really trust God in life. This has to do with your humility. It also has to do with your health. Strangely enough, again, you might think that seems like a very unspiritual way to understand the command. Why would God mind about whether I uh, you know, abuse myself and work myself into the ground? Consider this, friend. Your life is not your own. Your life is a stewardship that God's given you to live for him and for his glory. And the person who abuses themselves in that sense does not understand that the life belongs to God and not to them. But more than that, God loves you. When Jesus was caught by the Pharisees picking heads of grain as they were walking through the fields and they were eating them, and the Pharisees thought that was breaking the law because they said, you're harvesting. Of course, it's not harvesting. I mean, they were using their fingertips to pick individual grains as they walked through the field. And, and the, the Pharisees had a massively skewed understanding of how the law works. 
But Jesus' answer is very interesting. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, you weren't, you weren't created in order to live a life that fulfills Sabbath keeping. But rather, God gave the Sabbath to you as a gift to mankind because he loves you. For many of you, the reason you can't rest is because you don't know that God loves you. Well, the reason when you stop resting, you don't experience joy is because you don't understand the love of God in your life. It reminds me of that story when Jesus went to Mary and Martha's house. And he says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious about many things. She didn't understand that she could rest at at the teacher's feet. And experience his love. Listen to him. He wants you to be humble. He wants you to be healthy. And I think he also wants you to think about heaven. In the book of Hebrews, our future destiny as God's people is described as God's rest that we will enter into. And Christians who live frenzied lives in the present will never really have a moment to cast their mind forward to what is better and what is yet to come. But the Christian who experiences the pleasures of rest after a good week's work should, with God's help, have a greater anticipation of the rest that we are working towards in that final day. Because I don't know what your view of heaven is, but the way the Bible depicts it is that it will be like the best of what we enjoy on earth, but without any of the anxious toil. I think we'll still work, but without the the thorns and the thistles, as it were, in the ground, without the, the pain of work. We'll still enjoy friendship and a good laugh with friends, but without the backbiting and the criticism and the misunderstandings and the mistrust. It will be everything that's good on earth, but with, with the, the sin extracted and the evil extracted. And the best of Sabbath days are a foretaste of that, aren't they? The best of those moments when we stop and just rest in God are a foretaste of the sweetness of the life to come. I want to f- finish with a few practical pointers for some of you, because I think I think it's, it's, a, it's just a super practical theme, isn't it? How easy do you find it to rest? Let me just give you a few tips. My first is this. I think for some of you, the reason you can't rest is because you need to look back at how you're working. Some of you can't rest because, because you don't work. You don't work hard. You don't work in a steady and stable way. Um, you work in fits and starts and with... Bad habits of procrastination and distraction. Now, I'm guessing this isn't as relevant because this is the morning service. Probably more the guys who are going to come this evening. But the command begins with six days you shall labor and then you rest, right? He says you finish all your work in the six days so that you can rest on the seventh. And there's real wisdom in just understanding that work is a vital precursor to healthy rest. You know what it's like when you, when you go on holiday for too long? And pretty soon, what you thought was going to be heavenly bliss turns into just 
getting irritated with whoever you're with and annoyed with yourself and then you know, staying up way too late and getting up late and just not appreciating things and feeling groggy and miserable. And for some of you, that's, that's every weekend. And the reason is because you didn't work well in the week. There's a sweetness to rest that comes after the completion of work, which is what God modeled to us in, in creation. He, he looked on everything he'd made and said it's very good, and then he rested. And so some of you, rest needs to begin with, with work, actually. I know that also some of you think, that's not my problem. I'm busy all the time. Actually, I think there's a big difference between busyness and work. Busyness is outward-focused. It's the appearance of work for everyone who's looking. Work is, I know exactly what I must get done. I understand my responsibilities before God, and I take responsibility, and I do it in the time that he's given to me because he won't ask me to do more than the time he's given. There's a big difference there. So don't think just because you're the frenzied person that you know how to work. I remember hearing the New Testament scholar Don Carson just say that one of the the pieces of life advice that had sat with him his whole life from his mother, and this guy is insanely productive, was his mum told him, work hard, play hard, and never confuse the two. Some good advice there. It could change some of your lives, I'm sure of that. Look at your work is my first tip. Here's a second. Prepare to Sabbath. You know, in Exodus 16, when when the people of Israel are in the wilderness and God starts to give them miraculously the food that they call manna, which they had to collect each day. Do you remember how on a Friday they were meant to collect twice as much as they needed because God didn't want them to collect any on the Sabbath, on the Saturday? So they had to think ahead. They had to prepare ahead. And I think that healthy rest usually begins with some amount of preparation. Psychological preparation, arranging things, making sure the house is clean, perhaps making sure you have a plan. Those kinds of things. And in fact, there's so much wisdom in this because the more fixed that rest is and the more intensely you've prepared for it, the more likely you are to have completed everything you need to get done before you start the rest. I found that people who are kind of a bit sort of iffy about whether they're going to take a day off or not usually leave their work that bleeds into the day off, right? But when you say, no, I'm stopping at this time and then I'm going to work and I'm going to have rest, usually you work harder, right? It's like that, it's like that manic Friday before you're going away on holiday, isn't it? The worst time of the year when you're like, ah, trying to get everything done. But in a sense, every Friday should be like that. Prepare to Sabbath. Here's my third tip. I think we need, to, we need to switch off entirely when we're resting. Now, you may think this is just a, a piece of modern advice, but you've got to think, get yourself in the mind of an Israelite who has been commanded to do this. And most of them, remember, were working in agrarian lifestyle. They had, they had fields and farms that they had to look after. And if, you were, if it was that time of year when your harvest had come in and Friday was a bit wet, so you couldn't, you couldn't take the harvest, and then you wake up Saturday morning, and the sun is shining, the fields are dry, and you think, today is the perfect day. I need to take the harvest just in case it rains on Monday and the whole thing gets ruined. They had the challenge of just being able to switch off then and trust God. Now, of course, we, we experience this in a new, new way, don't we, today, because of our connectedness. 
that the digital age has made it impossible to set boundaries, hasn't it? I used to say when I had my first mobile phone, it was a funny little Panasonic thing with a you know, monotone screen and just could send texts. And I used to laugh at people with Blackberries. I'd be like, you're so stupid. Why would you carry your work with you the whole time? And now all of us have, have these, you know, these smartphones and stuff. And I think, it's, I think it's important for your sanity as well as for your godliness that you know how to separate your life that you know how to switch off, that you know how to bury it and not think about it and not be at the tether and the leash of your employer slash slave driver if, it, if it's at all impossible. Here's my fourth tip. I think you need to find things that restore you. And we're all uniquely wired. I understand that and we're not the same. So part of this is just knowing yourself. Knowing what restores your spirit, your soul. But also knowing what restores you in God. What invigorates your love for him. And then plan to do those things. It meets with all kinds of challenges when you're married and you are restored by very different things. Some of us are hermits. Some of us are social animals. And it's very challenging to negotiate the, uh, how we rest when one of you doesn't want to socialize and the other one does. I won't tell you who's who in my marriage. Uh, <laughs> But knowing yourself is vital. What restores you? What lifts you? I was just interested, as an aside, just this week, I was reading an article by um, Jean uh, Twenge, who's the social psychologist who wrote a really amazing article on the, how smartphones are destroying a generation. But she also wrote one just in the last couple of weeks on, on how, you know, when they, do these, when they do research, what they find is that the more people spend on screens, the less happy they are. And, um, you know, a little bit of screen time, they say, is, gives you a bump to your happiness. You have connectedness with other people, but too much and you're unhappy. And I think there's nothing worse than setting aside your day off to binge watch uh, TV and just and flick through Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, I'm just a pastor. What do I know? But I'm, have a think about it. Find things that genuinely restore you. And here's my last tip. Sleep. Sleep, just like Sabbath keeping, is God's way of keeping us humble. I can't think of any other reason why God created us in such a way that we have to sleep. Because it's such a weird thing to do, isn't it? To like become unconscious for a certain amount of time every single day. It's a really bizarre thing to do. But he's created every animal with the need, the necessity to sleep. And we are among those. Some of you trick yourself and think you don't need much sleep. It's not true. Apparently, there's the, only the microscopic percentage of the population, or, you know, almost 0% who don't need uh, at least seven or eight hours sleep a day. That might shock you. You think, I, don't get, I can't possibly get that kind of sleep. Well, you need to. But more than that, Sabbath is a moment to, to rest in God and to, to enjoy that kind of the alleviation of your burdens before him. And sleep just seems to me like a really practical way of doing that. Psalm 127, just to prove to you, this is still spiritual. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor it uh, build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go to late rest. In other words, burning the candle at both ends. Eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep.
As we close, I want to ask you two questions. Maybe you're not a Christian and you've never really experienced the rest that I've described today. Where all of your anxiety can be lifted off you because you trust in a father who cares for you. I promise you, you never will experience it unless you come to know God. You can experience temporary substitutes for it. Like the temporary experience of escape when you indulge certain pleasures or of masking your anxieties and your your anxious toil. But you'll never know that rest. Because that rest is only available for people who have come home and know God for themselves. They know forgiveness, actually. Because otherwise your conscience will constantly torture you. Friend, you could experience that. You could have your first Sabbath today. The only thing you need to do is, is come to God and pray and ask for his forgiveness. Because he has provided you with the opportunity to know him when his son died on the cross for you. That was the only thing necessary that you be forgiven and that the whole of your life can look new. Do you need the rest for the first time? That was my question to you if you're not a Christian. Here's my question to you if you are a Christian. Do you need to repent today of what you could think of as a kind of functional atheism? That the way you live your life is as though God doesn't care for you and isn't there and isn't sovereign over your life. One sign of that is your inability to switch off. It's not the only one, I'm sure. But do you need to repent of that and come back to him today and say to God, God, I want to trust you again. I want to live and act as though you care because you do. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your incredible wisdom, you set out a pattern for life that we could never have come up with ourselves, but expresses your wonderful heart for us, that you've given us work to occupy our time and fill our minds and give us a sense of fulfillment in life. But you've also commanded this rest. And ultimately a rest which reminds us of the final rest that we'll have when we come to meet with you face to face. And Lord, you know the anxieties in this room. The frenetic activity. You know the drivenness. That some of it's birthed in kind of sinful ambition. Some of it's birthed in sinful mistrust of who you are. You know, Lord God, the sins with which we wrestle on a day-to-day basis. But we ask you, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, you come and breathe fresh hope in us and renewal, spiritual renewal, as we rest in you. As we learn to worship, rehearse our freedom in the gospel, and rest in you, Lord. And I pray even now as we respond with worship, as we stand and sing, Lord, I pray that you will Help us to taste your sweetness again. Remember your goodness. To cast our burdens upon you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.